0: You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com.
1: This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one.
2: Hey there, it's Blasco, and this is a new level. Welcome to Episode 9. My guest today is Kim Zide Davis. Kim is the vice president of artist relations for Mike Davis Productions. She's been managing Pantera for 24 years. She managed Pantera while they were an active touring band and helped to market them as they transitioned into a legacy act. She has also managed Dimebag Daryl's estate for the last five years. During her nine years as a manager at Concrete Management, she worked with Pantera, White Zombie, Anthrax, Ministry, Prong, Down, Fear Factory, and more. She has spent the last 18 years participating and fundraising for Walk MS. Her team has raised over $350,000. She is a longtime friend and colleague, and I am super stoked she took the time to chat with me today. So, Kim... Thank you, my friend. Oh,
0: you're welcome, Blasco. Anytime.
2: Yes. Uh, So I always like to kind of start off with history, right? And I remember the situation. I was in this band called Drown. We got signed by our good friend, Michael Alago to Electra Records. And I'm thinking this is mid-90s and 93, 94, right? And then we didn't have a manager or anything. We didn't have a label. So Michael signed us, and he's like, well, you need a manager. And we're like... Okay, cool. We don't know any. So you're going to have to introduce us to some. So he introduced us to some of which I don't remember any of them other than Concrete Management, the Piranha Brothers, the guys that managed Pantera and White Zombie. And you got to figure in mid 90s, these were the bands, right? These were the guys. There was... No reason that we would go elsewhere. And we signed on with you guys. And I believe that was the first time that we met.
0: Yeah. You know what? I'm not sure. I came on in July of 1994. You guys, I believe, were already on the roster, but I'm not sure how long you had been on the roster.
2: Got it. So back it up. How did you get into the music business? You
0: know, I actually never planned on getting into the music business. I uh, originally was an accounting major. I started going and hanging out with my friends at the college radio station. Uh, changed my major to psychology. And after watching her do her radio show for a while, she said to me, she's like, why don't you get your own show instead of coming here and sitting and watching me do it? So I begrudgingly said, oh, okay. It just wasn't a thought that had ever entered my mind. Um, so I got my own show. I eventually took over a show from somebody else that interviewed local bands and national acts that kind of came through. uh, And we called it In the Spotlight. It was actually kind of cool because I got to meet local bands. I got to meet national acts. I eventually became the music director at the radio station. So through that, I got to meet, uh, you know, college reps from major labels. And, you know, they treated us well. They would take us out for food, for drinks, bring us to shows, take us backstage, all kinds of stuff that um, at the time was awesome because who, you know, who got to do that kind of stuff? And I I started going out to shows in Asbury park. That was right near where my college was. And basically I pretty much went to any show that was happening there. It was the stone pony, the fast lane, um, some other small clubs. And, um, I got to know Tony Palgrossi. He, uh, he started out, I guess in the early eighties, Um, He had been a trumpet player for Southside Johnny and the Asbury Jukes, and he kind of parlayed it into concert promoter. And I I saw him around a bunch because I just was out all the time. Um, I graduated from college. I was at a show at the Stone Pony. uh, The band Live was who were playing. He saw me, and he's like, what are you up to? I'm like, nothing. I just graduated. I'm looking for a job. Um, And at that point, I had gone on a few interviews in the city. I wasn't sure if I wanted to be. A manager. If I wanted to go into radio promotion, I really just wasn't sure what I wanted to do. He said to me, "He's like, come to my office on Monday. I'm sure you know my assistant always needs help. Somebody can answer the phones. You know, do you want to do that?" And I'm like, "Sure." I had no uh, no other prospects at the time, so I took him up on the offer. I showed up at his office on Monday morning, and his assistant looked at me like, "Who the fuck are you? And what are you doing here?" I mean, I don't know if he made it a habit out of picking up chicks in bars and telling them to come work for him, but. Uh, that's kind of the way she looked at me when I first got there. But she, you know, he he finally showed up at the office and told her who I was, and um, I just got right into it. I was answering the phone, I was sending faxes, I was, you know, just doing whatever BS busy work they needed me to do. I was there for about two weeks, and his assistant said to me, "You know, are you are you interested in going into artist management?" And I said, "Yeah, definitely." She said, Do you have a resume. My roommate works for this management company in this in New York City, and they're looking for somebody. I said, oh, sure. You know, I ran out to my car because it was 1994. And there was no email, no computer like there is now. And I faxed my resume through to you know her roommate's boss. And that was it. A week goes by. I hear nothing. I'm like, OK, I just wrote it off. I was like, great. Go nowhere fast. I was still working in Tony's office. His assistant says to me again, could you send another copy of your resume? That, the guy lost your resume. So I ended up faxing my resume, I think, five times. And I don't know if it was the people on the other end that were losing it, if the boss was losing it, whatever the, the story was. I'm not really sure. But eventually, he called me and I went into New York City. I show up at this office. I'm expecting an office and I get there and it's in an apartment. And it's like, it's a two bedroom apartment, like six people working there. I go in, I sit down, I, you know, I have this interview and it wasn't like any other kind of interview. It was a lot more laid back. At the end of the interview, the guy offers me the job and offers me $18,000. I balked, I balked at him and I'm like, you know what, how about 20? And he's like, just for that kind of comment, okay, you're hired and I'll give you 20. The short part of the story, the small, whatever, I don't know how to say it, but the guy that I interviewed with was Walter O'Brien. I had gotten myself a job for Pantera's manager with no experience and no nothing, and it was just literally my, you know, the combination of my drive and you know whatever I said to him in that interview. I guess I did an okay job.
2: Did was it was it something <laughs> to where he was like, "I see here you're a psychology major. Nope. You have no idea how this is going to benefit <laughs> you in the future."
0: You know what? Honestly, that would mean that he looked at my resume. I don't know, even know if he looked at it because if he looked at it, like what would he have seen? College radio, you know. Like I, in, oh, actually, I did in, intern at Megaforce Records. So uh, John and Marcia Zazula were my first example of the music business. So that was that was a lot of fun. But I, you know, I, I'm not. I can't really say.
2: In the so you've been doing this for a while. And you were you were in the midst of the heyday of probably one of the most important eras of heavy metal. So all the while, what would you consider your greatest achievement?
0: When I came into to Pantera's world, it was four months post Far Beyond Driven debuting at number one. Um, so, you know, I, I really stepped in shit with, with them. They were already obviously on their way and I was happy to be a part of it. Um, as far as... Achievements. When you're in the middle of something, and when you're part of something, you don't get to view it the way the rest of the world views it. (laughs) It was it was always a struggle. We always felt like we were struggling, even though it looked like to the outside world that we were on top. Everything still felt like a struggle. So you know, in hindsight, there's I I guess when I went to the Grammys with Pantera when they were nominated for me, that was huge. I, I guess that would probably be it because all the other things are kind of clouded with the the struggles that, that we had, it's harder. And it's hard. It's really hard to explain to people that while being famous has some, some great things, there's a whole lot of negative too. And you don't ever see it the way anybody else sees it. So whatever the fans are thinking is going on, that it's not just like, you know, happy, fucking yay. There's all kinds of bullshit that clouded a lot of it. And I think that's true for, for most famous people. It's not just, happiness all the time, the way it seems from the outside.
2: Yeah. Okay. So conversely, how about one misstep that you encountered along the way that you learned from?
0: Um, I guess it would, would be the, the communication factor. Um, that, that's huge. As much as my job was and still is to help the guys communicate with each other, the, the lack of communication is really what what caused their breakup. You know, in hindsight, I really wish that I would have I've done more and done it in a different way because maybe we wouldn't be here today, and maybe Dime would still be alive, and maybe Pantera wouldn't be broken up.
2: Right. So you know, I mean, I think uh, majoring in psychology and minoring in communications would be a good, uh, you know, asset if you're looking to get into the the management business. Correct. Um, anyone listening? <laughs> um, okay, so. What is the best piece of advice for someone who is working towards a career in the music business?
0: You know, I guess for me, I really just, I worked my ass off. So whatever, whatever I did, like when I got involved with the radio station, I worked my ass off. I did whatever I could. I went wherever I could, whatever I could do to show other people that I do a good job at what I'm doing is how I did it. You know, and it was just a matter of going out to clubs and being around and seeing people and meeting people and, you know, not being afraid to put yourself out there. Because me in a prior life, I, I never wanted to put myself out there ever, 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 ever. So the fact that I was able to go out there and introduce myself to people and put my own insecurities behind me to, to further what I wanted to do. I, I had, you know, just, I had a crazy drive. And I, I, at the time, I didn't realize it. I I did things that were very unnatural for me, just, you know, going up to people, talking to people, like literally, literally putting myself somewhere that I wouldn't normally be.
2: I imagine too, that there was a lot of passion because hearing you talk, it's like, oh, I I found, you know, whatever it was, Sabbath, bloody Sabbath, you know, my, my dad's cassette and I put it on and and like, wow, like it opened my mind and, and you know, changed my life forever. And then, you know, you worked in radio, you worked with the Zazulas, you went into management, right? you like, like, I assume that you were super passionate about music and you knew that early on. And like you said, like, that wasn't your intent, but it was always your passion, you know, and then once you put your mind to it, it's where you ended up.
0: Yeah. You know, it's funny because... Back then, it was a, it must have been a subconscious thing for me because if you would have met me in 1988 and told me that I was going into the music business, I would have told you you were crazy. Fucking crazy, but I wouldn't have said fucking. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, it just, my, my path in some ways was predetermined. There's like little bits and pieces of things that happened to me along the way that it was almost like I, I knew my path. I can remember... Uh, Being in college radio and around the time that Far Beyond Driven came out, um, at that point, the only Pantera song that I had ever heard was Hollow. Um, A friend had it on a mixtape and I had heard it and I liked it, but it, you know, in one ear, out the other, a mixtape back then. I feel like they were a dime a dozen. My station was not a metal station. We had a one hour metal show. They must've sent 20 copies of Far Beyond Driven. And um, I forced myself to listen to it. I took it and put it in my car and I listened to the whole thing from front to back one day. And that at that point in my life, that was not my genre. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't like, I wouldn't have called myself a metalhead. I just was into all kinds of music. I don't really have any recollection as to why I took that CD and put it in my car and forced myself to listen to it. And in hindsight, thinking about it, I really have no idea why I did it. A couple months beyond that, my then boyfriend was friends with Rachel Bolin from Skid Row and we went to Rachel's wedding and at Rachel's met wedding I met Rex and you know his his then girlfriend now ex-wife Belinda again didn't think anything of it 6 weeks after that I got hired by their manager to work for them and I've been with them ever since so like uh, my pa- my path was almost predetermined in my head and I can't, but I have no you know no explanation for it no no real way to explain it it just was there. I don't know if it was in my subconscious or how how
2: it all ended up, but it worked. So I I want to pick your brain on this sort of an interesting side note. We were actually having this conversation, uh, recently amongst ourselves over here. Um, and your perspective of the Pantera brand and potentially how even bigger that it has gotten over the years. And in reference to like, I think we were talking about like, What if Caius got back together? Like, what could they do now? And then, for instance, the Misfits playing arenas, where, like, you know, like in their heyday, they were playing bars and clubs, right? right? The thought, and 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 so, like, you know, time sort of builds these brands into these monumental things that that it's it's just because like there hasn't been a whole lot of better bands or better stuff that has come along like pantera was such a unique animal that like in a, in a lot of ways we talk about how you know philip kind of broke the mold of the heavy metal singer guy like not many people since them has innovated past pantera like in terms of their presence in terms of their riffs in terms of their the way their albums sounded the way that they wrote songs like it just I mean and this is gonna maybe come off funny, but it feels like heavy metal just hasn't progressed much past Pantera. So I'm just kind of curious like your perspective of being the, the one that is in control of the brand, how big you think it's gotten even since their height
0: um, yeah, that's you know again that that one is a little interesting for me too because it feels very much like um, how it did back in the day, being part of it, I guess I'm not ever really fully aware of just how big it is. It sounds, yeah. <laughs> probably sounds kind of backwards. In some ways it's eclipsed what they were back then, but in some ways I feel like, um, I don't know, it's it, it's different. The, I guess the, the big difference for me is the, the, how much emulation there is. I just, I can't get over how many Pantera tribute acts there are. Like I used to know all the Pantera tribute acts, and now it's so way beyond that, that I, you know, I obviously
2: can't keep track anymore. I mean, it's like if, you know, in a perfect world, Dime was still alive, right? (laughs) But the the guys still had just this huge rift between them that they just couldn't get over. But let's just say in 2018, they put it behind them. They put the machine back together. You know, they got on the treadmill. They got in shape. They put it together. They would be playing stadiums yeah uh. <laughs> right I mean, I mean i'm saying yeah. like that's how much because with social media and with everything and like i said you know there, there hasn't been there hasn't been another pantera since pantera and it's like and all these young kids that never got the opportunity to hear those songs live or see that band giving them an opportunity now the thing would be it would probably be bigger than metallica You know, really (laughs) at this point, I, I, I honestly think that it would, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just a huge fan. Um, so what are you most fired up about right now?
0: Well, it would be Pantera home video number four. Um, the thing that most people don't know is that after we finished three, watch it go, which was released in 1997, uh, Dime started recording Pantera home video four. He recorded everywhere we went from, you know, from 97 until 2001, until they stopped playing live. So there is countless hours of, you know, dime backstage antics, performance footage, practical jokes, like, all you know, everything that, that Pantera were famous for. We've put out a few teasers. There's been three Pantera Home Video 4 teasers. And uh, ho- hopefully in the next year or so, we will be releasing Pantera Home Video 4. It will be the last glimpse into you know pantera's heyday
2: you know and once again why pantera was so great because it's like they were They were jackass before jackass. That's right. That's exactly right. You know, those the you know, those videos. And what was cool is because it was such a balance. Like on one hand, here is a band that is the heaviest, most aggressive, most serious band of all time. And yet on the flip side, here's our videos of us being complete maniacs and just fun like you know funny stuff and and just it was just so out of balance of what you thought you know you thought they were just like these dark cloaked guys yeah. that were just <laughs> serious and, and then but it wasn't that which which just kind of really painted them in this such a unique picture that you know like once again, that no one's ever been able to emulate in any way, but I'm, you know, that's, that's awesome. And, and I think that everyone can say that we're super looking forward to that, that video. So, um, what is your one prediction for the future of the music business?
0: You know, I, I I'm still, I guess I'm still old school. And as much as I know that everything's gone to, s- to streaming, I'm pretty stoked about the, the vinyl resurgence and I still hold out hope that the physical product won't ever disappear.
2: Yeah, I mean, vinyl was so cool, you know, and 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 we grew up in that era. Like yes, I was, we did, I was right? I, I, like, like I experienced the birth of the CD Correct. in that my 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 first band got signed in 1985. There was only vinyl and cassettes. We put out record number one in 86 and record number two in 87. Those were vinyl and cassette. In 1988, we put out record number three, and they were like, oh, hey, you know, this record we're actually going to put on CD, too. And we were like, why? Like, who's <laughs> right. Nobody like, knew yeah. at
0: that point. I mean, obviously, the music business had an, an inkling, but most people had no clue.
2: And we were like, there is no way that is going to catch on because the artwork is too small (laughs) and it was like, you know, and, and, and stuff, but you know, but like, look, technology and convenience, you you know, kind of took over and, and, and the quality of the, of the sonic appearance of presence of the music. I get it. Right. But I agree with you that the resurgence of vinyl, the experience of holding that piece of 12 inch Opening up the gatefold, pulling out the lyric sheet, pulling out the collages that you know we did, or wh- however you put together the right. the sheet that held the, or the the record sleeve, you know and. And just the detail of it all and reading the liner notes and like, who is this producer? And who is like, it was just like, Oh, here's the address to the record label. And I'm going to send them a letter and right, like, right, tell them how right. oh, great yeah. this, right. You know, it's just like that experience and the, and the hard experience of, of like fanzines and, you know, and, and cassette tapes and even cassette tapes, and, you know, having a resurgence now. I know, I love and it. look, I agree with you. Like I, 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 th- I hope that it comes back even more so. And, and, and you know, for, and for whatever reason, I think I'm excited about it, not so that I can just go back and sort of relive that, but that people that never had a chance to experience that are now experiencing music in that way, to me, is what I'm most excited about.
0: Right, right. I mean, you know. I'm happy when I walk into Hot Topic and they're selling the vinyl, because to me, that says they're, they're reaching the, the younger audiences, which is who need to have it, but they need to experience that.
2: Right. So, okay, look, hypothetically, get in a time machine, take yourself back. To the heyday of concrete management, uh-huh. right? And so, think of then as whenever you would take on a, a younger band, right? Uh-huh. And you and you would pick up a developing client, like you didn't drown, and you know whoever else you had then right. or whatever. What qualities would you look for in a new management client?
0: Uh, I guess, obviously, the drive, getting out there and doing things to promote yourself. Obviously, the talent. You need to have a, a good. Good combination. The the one thing about Pantera that always worked is that we we called them lightning in a bottle because it was the four of them together at the right time. And I feel like that was the case for new clients too. It had to be a combination of of talents, not just you know great singer and shitty backup band. It had to, everybody had to to contribute and do their their fair share. And I guess just really. Getting out there and playing shows, you know, I know it doesn't work like it used to, but there's something to be said for organic, you know, not going on on Facebook and buying likes and Instagram and buying likes because that's there's nothing organic or real about it.
2: I was talking to Scott Sokol uh, for this very podcast and he was recounting the time that he saw Pantera play for the very first time to 12 people yep. in a club that were stage diving from the stage, just onto the floor because there were, was, there, there wasn't the enough stage. bodies to right. actually jump onto. <laughs> right. you know? And, and, uh, but he, but he was like, but I knew yeah. he's like, like I, I knew at that, I, just seeing them, it was just like a force to be reckoned with. That was undeniable. Yep. Um, you know? Just
0: something, something to be said when, when, when all the members just go together and click in, in a certain way, it just, it shows, you know, it could be, you know, someone's backyard barbecue. But if you see it and you hear it, you know.
2: As I was telling you before I hit uh, record that this podcast is called A New Level and is Pantera inspired. So I have to thank you very much for, you know, taking the time and and, and coming on doing this. But I have to ask you, what would be a new level for you?
0: You know, and I guess this probably won't be the same kind of new level that somebody else would come up with. If 20 years from now, I can still be doing what I'm doing. Um, you know, there's some days where I pinch myself that I'm like, you know, obviously worked with Pantera for all that time and continue to like, you know, the, the thing that, that people don't know be about me at this point is that, you know, I live in suburbia. I have two kids carpooling to soccer and doing all that stuff while still having the pleasure of managing Pantera on a daily basis. So, you know, I wish that we still had a guitar player that was alive and now we could do, do a reunion tour, but that's not in the cards. So uh, uh, my, my, you know, new level would just still be. The pleasure of of having this job
2: 20 years from now. And I will also add that potentially you'd also like to get to the point to where uh, your team for Walk MS has raised half a million dollars.
0: Yep. I was diagnosed with MS uh, in December of 2000. And, you know, it was a highly stressful time. Uh, you know, work, working for concrete management and managing bands was highly stressful. So the first couple of years for me with the disease were hard. I did what I could to lower my stress levels and uh, decided that the one positive thing I could do would be to fundraise. And you know, it, over the last 18 years, I have reached out to people in the music business who've been touched by MS, even people who haven't. and the support that I've gotten uh, has been amazing. Um, That $350,000, you know, obviously came from people that I know, but I have a whole team that that raises with me and walks with me every year. Um, And every time I turn around, there's more people just in the last six months, five people in the music business have contacted me and said, I was just diagnosed with MS. You know, can you help me? What can I do? Can I walk with you? So I feel like um, it heavily affects a lot of people in the music industry. You know, obviously the real world too. It's uh, it's definitely my, my passion. Um, I want them to find a cure so nobody has to suffer with the
2: stupid disease. Yeah. And I'd say um, thank you. I contribute to your fundraisers yes, and, you do. and contribute to um, my cat charity <laughs> fundraisers. And so I appreciate that as well. So my last question, the most important question, <laughs> living or dead, who are the members of your ultimate super group?
0: Well, Dimebag Darrell would be the guitar player. I think that has to be a given. Um, yes. Lemmy on bass, Dave Grohl on drums, maybe vocals sometimes too, because I, I like Dave Grohl either way. James Hetfield on rhythm guitar and Ozzy, you know, 70s era.
2: Wow! So you know what you could do with that supergroup is like almost everybody in that band is a singer. That's think of right. that. Yeah,
0: think go.
2: of yeah. think of either <laughs> those guys pulling you know four part harmonies or <laughs> taking turns or you know what have you. But like wow, that's, that's, that's pretty,
0: uh, yeah. You know what? I hadn't even strongest. I hadn't even thought about it from that perspective. But you're right.
2: <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks, Kim. I. Totally appreciate it. And this was awesome.
0: Thanks for having me.
2: A New Level Podcast is brought to you by Musicians Institute. Headphones provided by Monster Products. Editing and music by Blake Bunzel. Logo design by Mango Beard. I produced this show with my managemental co-host from the other coast, Mr. Mike Mowry for Jabberjaw Media. Email me questions or comments at... AskBlasco at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute. What's the
1: name of that podcast?
2: That's Axe to Grind. Uh, and right now you're going to be getting a little, a little taste of it right down to the shaking microphone and all.
1: <laughs> and my name's Bob. Um, all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from a uh, niche music podcast that, that you either love, want to love, or hate.
2: Yeah, imagine all the emotions that you have towards the genre that, that uh, has impacted your life, uh, and then condense them down to an hour to
1: two hours a week. So triangulate your speakers, think about jumping off the bed, singing along, dancing like an idiot. And listen to Axe Grind Podcast. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast. A songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurwitz, and -and up-and-coming artists of today, such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris makes a podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts and new episodes come out every Monday. This is the Jabberjaw podcast network.